Hello, and welcome to this installment of the ATS Assembly on Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology's Journal Club. I'm Rob Stansberry, member of the Assembly's Web Committee and co-chair for the SRN Journal Club. Today we'll be discussing an article recently published in CHEST, which reviews the literature to date on oral appliance therapy for obstructive sleep apnea. The article is entitled, Oral Appliances for the Management of Obstructive Sleep Apnea, an Updated Review of the Literature. I'm pleased to welcome the article's lead author, Dr. Mona Hamoda, who is a four-year doctoral candidate in craniofacial science in the Department of Oral Health Sciences at the University of British Columbia and recipient of the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine's Graduate Student Research Excellence Award. I'm also glad to welcome the paper's senior author, Dr. Fernanda Almeida, who's an associate professor in oral health sciences at the University of British Columbia and specializes in obstructive sleep apnea and dental sleep medicine. I would also like to thank Dr. Harold Smith for joining us today to provide expert commentary and insight on this review. Dr. Smith serves as the current president of the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine and has been using oral appliances to treat snoring and obstructive sleep apnea since 1993. He currently consults for five major Indianapolis hospital sleep disorders clinic in the management of sleep apnea. Dr. Hamoda, to start, I will ask you to give some background what led you to undertake this review paper, and specifically, has there been significant updates in the literature since the joint statement on oral appliances for sleep apnea was published in 2015 by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine? Okay, um, hello, and um, thanks for having me today. Um, firstly, it is the clinical practice guidelines published in 2015 in itself that led us to undertake this review paper. So, um, as you mentioned, this is a joint publication of the AASM and AADSM, and uh, the practice guidelines um, pertinent to the use of oral appliances in the treatment of OSA. And the point that I would like to focus on about these guidelines is that by not limiting the use of oral appliances to a particular disease severity, the guidelines have opened up the possibility for the widespread use of oral appliances in the clinical setting. Therefore, it was important to give healthcare providers a general and an up-to-date idea about oral appliances and their utilization in the clinical practice. And yes, there have been significant updates in the literature that we wanted to highlight in this narrative review article, uh, such as... Um, research pertaining to personalized disease management, um, OSA phenotyping, adherence and its role in chronic disease management, and predictors of um, treatment success. So, for example, there's an emerging interest in precision medicine and P4 medicine in different fields, and particularly in the field of OSA management. P4 medicine being medicine that is personalized, predictive, uh, preventive, and participatory. In order to personalize treatment, we need to discuss the different treatment options available for OSA, including oral appliances. Recently, there has also been research exploring the different types of um, or phenotypes of OSA, which has helped unravel some of the reasons behind why oral appliances might be efficacious for some patients, but not for others. Uh, oral appliances, for example, mainly target the anatomical factors involved in the pathophysiology of OSA, and due to the multifactorial nature of the condition, um, there could be other factors that oral appliances are unable to act upon, such as um, high loop gain, for example. This could explain why oral appliances' efficacy might be limited in some cases, and that uh, we also wanted to discuss in this uh, review article. Um, additionally, also, there is uh, adherence to treatment, uh, which is an important topic that we thought um, is very relevant and we wanted to address. 
recently published research also has highlighted the importance of adherence and the management of chronic conditions. The SAFE trial, for example, um, were unexpected as they did not show um, any noticeable effect of CPAP or on cardiovascular health. But looking at it from a different perspective, um, these results highlight the importance of adherence and its effect on health outcomes as the non-significant effect may be attributed to um, low CPAP adherence rates uh, noted in the study. So adherence also is an um, area that we wanted to talk about. And also in the past couple of years, um, more recent systematic reviews and meta-analyses have been published that consolidate the notion that oral appliances could be similar to CPAP in terms of uh, symptom reduction, uh, improving quality of life, and uh, effects on blood pressure. Uh, For example, there was a network meta-analysis that was also published in um, 2015 uh, in JAMA, uh, and it showed that both CPAP and oral appliances were associated with similar reductions in blood pressure. So yeah, there was a considerable amount of relevant research that we wanted to capture in an updated review of the literature. Great. Very good. Thank you um, for that introduction. Very good points. Uh, Dr. Smith, what are your thoughts on the review, and did you have any specific questions? Overall, this paper is uh, is excellent. You um, mentioned uh, treating edentulous patients and partially edentulous patients, knowing that uh, some practitioners, uh, including myself, have been very successful uh, using oral appliance designed with uh, denture bases. Uh, What would a uh, research design look like that would explore the effectiveness of this type of treatment approach? Yeah, so I think um, talking about the edentulous patients, um, I think that highlights a couple of things that many times we do not pay attention, which is um, populations that are either from lower income, um, you know, from uh, populations that tend not to come even to see us many times in a practice. And from various studies that are there, looking at difference in socioeconomics, we know that um, the patients on lower socioeconomics uh, are normally with higher AHI in general, and they have been underprivileged and with less access to health uh, care in general. Um, So we need to focus more, I think, on this side of the population, Uh, many times the population who are edentulous. In terms of uh, oral appliance or CPAP, I don't think we have ever seen truly outcomes of focusing on these patients who have no teeth in their mouth. For example, look at CPAP and mouth leaks and how much of a problem would be in terms of nasal mask on the upper ridges without teeth. Can it stay? Is there more leaks in there? Is there more uh, oral leaks and so forth? And even on oral appliances, uh, the few studies that we have published, it's mainly K-series and um, kind of oral appliances itself that try to protrude the mandible for those or even tongue retaining devices. The tongue retaining devices uh, studies that are out there, the majority um, of the patients are always dentate. They always have teeth, and then we have the appliance on. So we really need to focus on this population, I believe, in the future to look at the efficacy of treatment as a whole and um, also in terms of oral appliances treatment with better quality uh, research studies, um, as Dr. Hamona just pointed out. Thank you. While randomized controlled trials are the gold standard to determine effectiveness. Can you describe options about research designs that can be used in the field 
to yield practical findings in the real-world setting for practitioners uh, like me? How, how can we get involved in this type of research? If we're not conducting a randomized control trial, the other option would be observational trials that uh, many clinicians can be involved in or cross-sectional trials. Uh, observational trials, is that used widely or is that... Yeah, so I think, you know, Harold, uh, it is important to include clinicians, I think, many times to a certain uh, specific subpopulations. Many times you need to use multiple practices sites um, to gather a higher number of patients of those. Uh, observational trials are good as long as you have a really specific mm-hmm. hypothesis. You have specific inclusion criteria, exclusion criteria, um, and also you really follow up every single patient. So there is no selection bias. So those are things that is not just saying, okay, I look back in my charts and I have this many patients who are uh, edentulous and we put everything in the same bag uh, with different types of assessments, different types of follow-ups. They are important to have there. I think it is the move today in research to involve clinical practices in in kind of observational trials or registries, if you want to call, or cohorts. Um, But those needs to be very specifically done, carefully designed, and followed up. And to kind of follow up on that, um, Harold mentioned this is really a team approach, and I actually have um, some great dentists I work with, but um, locally we struggle with a lot of um, dentalist patients, a lot of people with a lot of periodontal disease. And I guess um, maybe this is a question for the group, and you mentioned in your paper there's a number of Neuropromorphic uh, factors that predict success uh, success with oral appliance, and um, I have to admit when I send patients for an evaluation, I don't consider a lot of the factors such as you know age, degree of overjet, or cephalometric factors. Um, and part of that is a kind of error on wanting these patients to be assessed. But for clinicians referring to one, are there certain factors that you they should consider prior to initiating a referral? You know, for instance, I was always taught that patients have to have at least eight to ten good teeth per arch to be considered for an oral appliance therapy. And should I not be sending those patients or any uh, um, steering you could give me there on things to consider when I'm wanting to refer a patient. There are many uh, studies looking at predictors of treatment response, um, as you mentioned, and uh, uh, for example, female gender, younger age, um, lower BMI, smaller neck circumference are predictors of a more favorable treatment response. Patients, for example, who are morbidly obese uh, might not be good candidates for oral pines therapy. Uh, patients uh, who could not protrude their lower jaw forward and or patients who have severe dental mobility and or patients um, who have severe periodontal disease or reduced number of teeth, um, these may not be good candidates for oral appliances that protrude the mandible, but they can still be candidates for tongue-retaining devices or other treatment options. Um, The other thing to consider, of course, is patient preference uh, when referring patients. Um, I think patients need to be presented with the different treatment options available when they're first considering treatment. What happens in some clinical settings is that patients are only given the option of CPAP as a treatment, and then if they refuse or try it and couldn't tolerate it, then they're directed to other treatment options. 
So I think it is important to give the patient the different treatment options from the get-go with, of course, their advantages and limitations and the likelihood of success based on um, the individualized assessment. On that subject, um, <clears throat> I agree uh, completely, and I think it's an excellent uh, uh, suggestion of having a minimum of 8 to 10 uh, healthy teeth and uh, healthy mouth for the mandibular uh, arch and maxillary arch uh, uh, can be a dentalist. Uh, but then you have to put in uh, the clinical experience. And, and wh what that shows, or what that has shown, is that uh, these are excellent suggestions. Uh, and uh, they are the best way to go. But uh, practical need, I think, in the population uh, that will not always be the perfect situation uh, dictates that uh, clinical evaluation and obvious lack of viable options. And I think it warrants uh, the use of oral appliance therapy in marginal tooth numbers and edentulous patient conditions. Uh, you know, in, in private practice, we're sent patients many, many times that, of course, have failed with other treatments. With CPAP, they may not be a candidate for a surgical intervention. And we're with them, and we're many times their last chance, their last resort. And a lot of them come in with that anxious and uh, fearful thought that if we say no, they have no other options. And I think it's incumbent upon dental sleep medicine practitioners, number one, of course, to be uh, educated and to be credentialed and to be a prepared uh, part of a medical team uh, before they even start to treat patients with obstructive sleep apnea and understanding that that is a medical condition and not a dental condition. Uh, that's kind of another subject um, altogether. But uh, so many times there are people that we know have tremendous barriers to success. And we spend a lot of time with those patients explaining why they have barriers to success, whether it's periodontal disease, whether it's uh, not enough teeth, whether they are truly edentulous. In, in the whole scheme of it, the inability to move their jaw protrusively is probably the only contraindication that I can think of to uh, mandibular advancing oral appliance therapy, obviously. I have to say that I'm not a big fan of tongue retaining devices as far as a uh, truly successful treatment for a lot of reasons, one being uh, uh, the discomfort of a tongue retaining device and the proven uh, uh, less efficacious ability of a tongue retaining device. But the point I'm, I'm trying to get at is uh, we have those ideal parameters that we want for our patients, but that's not what we have. So, uh, you know, we depend on wonderful researchers like uh, Mona and uh, Fernanda to come up with more and more options for these folks. And I think uh, tongue retaining devices uh, versus uh, mandibular advancing devices that have um, denture bases and all of that. Uh, we have to treat the people that are there and uh, treat the people who have the disease 
and the condition that must be treated. And you just can't throw your hands up and say we can't do it. we got to find ways to do it. So that was a long way, I think, of my saying how much I appreciate uh, both of you and both of your works. Uh, it's just fantastic for our field. Thank you. Yeah, um, uh, thank you. Thank you, Harold. I'd like to just put a, a few comments on that. First, in terms of the tongue retaining devices, I think we do have enough research to show uh, that in terms of reduction in the AHI, they are as effective as multiple advancement splints from the literature that we have on. Uh, of course, they are not as easy to use, and mm-hmm. patients are dentate. Um, but as I said, many times the patients come, and they, that's the less option. And for those patients, uh, yes, they can use something, because they, once they manage to fall asleep and they can have that good quality of life, I think they move forward. So, um, And the other thing is I'd like to go back to Rob's questions then. So when do I really send my patients to, you know, to, to us or to a dentist who mm-hmm. works in the field? Um, what I think one of the points that Mona uh, really brought up, which we tend to focus so much on the characteristics that we're used to see uh, as um, health practitioners, which is, you know, the AHI, the next circumference, the SAFs, and, and so on and so forth. We forget to talk to the patient and understand what is their quality of life or, or the methods of life. What are they, do they camp a lot? Are they always in the outdoors? Um, are they actually, we forget to say, are they dating? You know, it could be a 50-year-old just divorced and he's um, don't he doesn't want to go out and suddenly have to pull out this whole machine. Uh, and they will end up not using those things. Uh, or really for the young patients, they say, I don't want to be the rest of my life hooked to a machine. So those are simple things that we tend to not ask or not take into account that these patients uh, won't be able to um, comply with one or the other therapy. I mean, same thing for oral appliances. Some patients spend um, a lot of money doing a late orthodontic treatment to have finally the perfect bite because finally they had money to go and use braces. And we know oral appliances would tend to move a little bit of teeth. Uh, and they don't want anything to move, even a, you know, a micrometer. So those patients should really be on CPAP. And, and if the patient understands those things from the get-go, I think that's important. But it's really looking at patient expectations. Uh, that's really important. Uh, we've seen in one of uh, our studies that we published on preferences before as well, they are the type of patients who are really concerned about their health and they really want to understand their AHI, what is their oxygen desaturation. Those are patients that, you know, with oral appliances, we normally cannot get that perfect resolution uh, of the DSATs and, and the AHI. So those patients actually, they may think they preferred an appliance, but if they explained how each of the treatments compare to each other, they may right from the get-go from the, go for the one. And that's what Dr. Hamona is, is saying about present the patient with the options and the pros and cons of each of the options in more of an unbiased way. We tend always to push whatever we kind of believe the most, uh, you know, it's um, it's normal for us, uh, like Dr. Uh, Smith here saying, you know, I can do everything that I can, and of course I'll do my best. But we can't forget that all of us clinicians treating our patients with sleep apnea are going to be doing that. 
but we he- need to hear better patient preference, patient perspectives on the attributes of each of the therapies and what matches most. These are therapies for long term. Uh, this is a therapy we're expecting the patients to be using for 10, 15, 20 years. It needs to match their lifestyle, needs to match what they're looking forward to. So I think that's one of the areas that we're pointing out in this paper is uh, looking at patients and understanding how things are. I think you're exactly right. And even physicians caring for patients with obstructive sleep apnea now are um, beginning to understand this more personalized approach. And even when I back and read the 2015 um updated guidelines again. I still get the feeling when I sort of read that statement, I think the specific language is we recommend that sleep physicians consider prescriptions for oral appliances rather than no treatment for adults with obstructive sleep apnea or who or who are intolerant of CPAP therapy or prefer alternative therapy. And it's almost getting to the point now, kind of based on, you know, reading your paper and our discussion, um, that maybe the statement should read, sleep physicians should consider a prescription for oral appliance or PAP therapy for the treatment of at least mild to moderate obstructive sleep apnea. I think that's changing quite a bit, Rob. Uh, That's the wonderful thing about what's going on today. Many of us who have been practicing for a long time, uh, that's the way it used to be. It was uh, dentists would receive a referral from a physician after the patient uh, preference had uh, shown that they either cannot or will not use a uh, a CPAP. And uh, first line of treatment many times, I think many, many physicians now who are working with uh, qualified dentists are seeing that um, they don't need to be as timid about thinking of an oral appliance as a first line treatment especially for mild to moderate. But uh, uh, due to the fact that so many people cannot tolerate the CPAP uh, who have severe apnea, the dentist by default is treating a lot of uh, uh, severe patients with great success. And physicians are noticing that. And of course, being part of the medical team and making sure that the patient is staying in touch with their physician and going back and the uh, final disposition of the patient is really in the hands of the physician, not the dentist. And that's just part of being a uh, uh, in a medical team, a multidisciplinary approach. I, I have to say one of yeah. the most exciting things I liked about the whole thing, your, your, your entire, was uh, what you came up with, with effectiveness and adherence and uh, brought in what the World Health Organization uh, thought about that. I think that's a very powerful statement. The way it was 25 years ago, people would get uh, titrated for a CPAP, and obviously on the titration trial, they would see that the CPAP was effective, and that was fantastic. But then the physician might not be looking as closely to is the patient using the treatment. Now this is flip-flopped 180 degrees, and it's very exciting because physicians are coming to the realization that without adherence, there's not going to be effectiveness. 
and I love the way that you brought this into your paper. I think it's that's probably one of the most, to my way of thinking, one of the most important uh, things that uh, you have brought out because of the synergistic relationship that the qualified dentist and the physician must have for the protection and for the uh, wonderful outcomes that we're getting for patients. So I want to thank you for that particularly. Thank you. Taking on that, and I'd like just to be a little bit provocative here, Rob, and um, please uh, feel free okay. to, to comment sure. on that as well. Um, but we always say, you know, the severe cases and mild to moderate and so on and so forth. I'd like to touch on that and touch again on what Harold just pointed out in terms of putting adherence into the whole uh, game, uh, but more specifically on the severe cases. Uh, whenever we talk severe, severe is a bag of mixed patients. Uh, they are those patients that, in my sense, are really the heavy severe, where there's major desaturation, but at least 10% of the time below 90% of um, uh, oxygen saturation and so forth, with tons of true apneas or hypopneas related to DSAS, which again, we've seen more and more related to even cardiovascular outcomes and so on and so forth. So I think that's um, that would be the one severe that I'll say, you know, I would agree with you. Those people are, those patients are the ones truly onto more on the CPAP. We know appliances with patients who desats a lot, and I mean getting really below the 70s, a high percentage of time below the 90s, and so on. But what about all the other severes? We have a lot of patients with AHIs of 40s, with maybe 5%, not even that of the time below 90%, um, lots of hypopnias, lots of arousals, um, and many times very little symptoms. Right, so those asymptomatic, right. severe cases, and we have to understand these patients. They may uh, be highly adherent to neural appliance, and it may be the ones that are driving a lot of the clinical trials that are there to show that there's similar uh, effectiveness of both treatments. Mm-hmm. So, with that, I like to point out whenever um, you know this that Harold was talking about in terms of uh, putting adherence into the game of evaluating and you said before also it's the team is how can the physicians really do that their follow-up and we need to either using the mean disease alleviation or the Sarah index or I don't know what uh, uh, the future will bring to us as how do we need to really assess those patients uh, but it's really understanding how much of an improvement am I expecting and how much an AHI or a residual AHI will I accept if the adherence is high? Um, Most of the studies that we looked at the severe cases, for example, if there is an AHI of 14, I'll say maybe that's a treatment failure. But is it true? Like if we look now with the paper from Sushmita Sarudi on mild sleep apnea or the review that uh, I was part of, and we looked at, well, mild sleep apnea, you know, that's HI of 5 to 15, doesn't seem to be of a high impact in terms of cardiovascular, high impact even in symptoms. So how much of a residual AHI with high adherence are we willing to accept? That, that's a very good point. The enemy of good is better. And um, I have many patients who, you know, start out with an AHI of 45, 50. I get them to a residual of 12, 15. They feel better. 
a lot of times I call that a win. And uh, it's particularly my experiences. If you start cranking up pressure or doing more aggressive things, they a lot of times will just give up on therapy because um, it mm-hmm. becomes uncomfortable for them. So, um, and I mean, it, I think it's a really important point that you know when you look at CPAP and oral appliance, um, even though oral appliance tends to have a you know, higher residual AHI, I think most people would agree that there's suboptimal efficacy that seems to be really counterbalanced by the superior adherence you get overall with using an oral appliance compared to CPAP. And I think uh, one thing we need to look at is uh, combination therapy. The combination of CPAP uh, or PAP uh, and oral appliance, uh, the combination of... uh, uh, you know, any anything, whether it's uh, uh, surgery, uh, whether it's uh, positional therapy, uh, all of that. But uh, the CPAP and the oral appliance, uh, it's the best of both worlds. And that's what we're finding, is that if you compare uh, CPAP uh, results and oral appliance results, particularly in severe patients uh, who have had trouble with CPAP, uh, being compliant with it, uh, adding the oral appliance to the mix and be able mm-hmm. to reduce the pressures. And yep. not, and if you do an interface, being able to get the straps uh, uh, off of the uh, face and you're using a uh, nasal pillows and, and doing it that way, so many people who would, like you say, quit therapy, uh, continue on. Because now they they have a much more comfortable and much more efficacious uh, uh, application there. So I think combination therapy needs to be researched more, and we need to find out better ways of utilizing it and uh, more efficacious ways of utilizing it and just get the best of both worlds so that people are thinking of the terms of not only uh, – the uh, splinting, but also the pressure and doing it together. Yeah, and and if I can point on that a little bit too, it's, I think it goes back to what we were talking before, which is what is an acceptable residual AHI or residual symptoms from the patients and when can you add on uh, another therapy, right? Um, right? We have done, or it has been done in medicine quite a lot in terms of patients who had CPAP, normal AHI, uh, still residual sleepiness, and you add uh, modafinil or armodafinil and so on, but it's never done with or appliance because, oh, no, no, but you haven't really treated completely the apnea. There's still an AHI of 14. Uh, patient is sleepy. They have to move back to CPAP where maybe sometimes they have thought it that route it couldn't really tolerate much. So I do agree that um, we need to understand when do we need more than one treatment? Um, is the same thing that we do um, with hypertension. You know, when do you add one more drug? to the pile uh, and so on. But uh, I think there are um, emerging research in that in terms of combinations of oral appliance and positional therapy uh, with very good results. There are some um, old uh, from 99 and now some new one from um, combination of oral appliances and surgery. And what I think that is one of the area which is 
what is driving uh, Dr. Hamoda here, uh, which is her thesis, and it's based on a pilot study that we published, which is combining oral plants and CPAP, but not at the same time. We know, uh, in general terms, patients with uh, CPAP, they tend to go for a couple of days without their CPAP at all, uh, just to give it a rest and because they can't do So, yes, it's still more than 70% of the nights. It's still a little bit more than four, four hours a night. But what about those left hours? From the review and the JAMA that Dr. Hamona pointed out in 2015 on decrease in blood pressure, they pointed out that every one extra hour of CPAP use does an extra reduction of about one millimeter of mercury in systolic and diastolic blood pressure, which is almost as much as using the four hours of sleep for CPAP. So you almost double the effect by every extra hour you can use the CPAP. Um, If you can use then an alternative in those last hours uh, of sleep or the days that you will not use anything and you rest, you could use an oral appliance. And that's the study that uh, we are running and Mona is the, uh, the main a student who's, who's driving this study is really using them alternatively and seeing how much more can we add in terms of uh, the effectiveness uh, of treatment as a whole. We don't have to separate. We'd never separate when we put in a person on a hypertensive that we're also telling them to watch out their diet, to start doing more exercise. So I think all of those have to come together and add up um, treatments, but definitely the combination is something we need to look into. And it's sometimes I don't like the burden of putting everything one on top of the other one. So you put an appliance on top of a CPAP on top of the surgery. But if you can do some of those things in alternative days, patients really like not to have the side effect of this versus the side effect of that for specific days. Um, and I think that's an area for sure that we need to move forward and get more studies. But I don't know if we have time, uh, but if Mona could actually even explain a little bit of the trial that she's running. Um, so we're try- running a trial where we're uh, looking mainly at uh, adherence uh, and preference uh, in terms of uh, OSA management. So uh, we uh, it's a randomized controlled trial and it's a multi-center trial uh, conducted in different centers here in Canada. And um, we get the patients titrated on both oral appliances and CPAP. And then, um, so this is the titration phase of the study. And then we move on to the uh, crossover phase where the patients use uh, one treatment for one month and we assess all the outcomes, whether they're subjective or objective outcomes. And then um, the patients are, um, they cross over to the other um, arm of the trial where they use the treatment that they haven't used before. So for example, a patient who started in CPAP for a month uh, crosses over to oral appliance for a month. And again, at the end of that month, we assess um, objective and subjective uh, outcomes. After that, uh, we disclose the results of both treatments to the patient and then give the patient both treatments to take home and use um, however they want. And then we start observing uh, what they tend to use more and how they alternate between the treatments and um, what drives this um, use of this or that treatment and so on. So it's um, a trial where we're, um, um, it's a randomized control trial. So we give them um, the treatments and then after that, we observe them for another six months and see uh, what they tend to use and um, assess the outcomes again um, at a regular interval. Great. That sounds like a very, very interesting trial. And uh, thank you again for uh, putting this uh, 
article together. It's I feel like there's so much we could discuss. We could go on till midnight, at least here on the East Coast. But um, Dr. Hamoda, to end uh, the discussion, could you maybe just give us three important points that you think um, kind of came out as you did this review and something you think sleep physicians as well as dental practitioners should really take home from this paper? Of course. Um, so number one would be that um, oral appliances are a treatment option worthy of consideration due to their high reported adherence and patient preference, along with their um, similar effects uh, as CPAP on outcomes other than the PSG reported or related outcomes. Um, the other point would be in terms of which uh, oral appliance to use and so on. Um, the uh, recommendation is that custom-made titratable oral appliances are the appliances, the best appliances. Uh, different designs exist within this category of appliances, and it is up to the patient to choose the most comfortable and suitable for him or her as long as it is a custom-made um, appliance and titratable. Third point um, that we'd like to bring up or uh, summarize is that obstructive sleep apnea is a chronic condition that requires lifelong therapy. Um, So the patients need to be part of the decision-making process, uh, and this will likely help improve adherence um, in the long term to treatment. Dr. Almeida and Dr. Almeida, thank you very much for putting this uh, paper together and uh, speaking with us about it today. And uh, Dr. Smith, uh, again, thank you for your expert commentary and insight on this review. And with that, I will bring this installment of the ATS, Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology Journal Club, to an end. And thank you all very much.